there's something special about this time of year. And I love, I love what it does. I love this idea of newness of life, this idea of the opportunity for new beginnings, the, the, the idea that uh, there are some things that uh, seem like they're lost forever, but our God is a redeeming God, and uh, with him nothing is lost forever, and that includes us. I, I love this time of year, and I love this time of year uh, for other reasons as well. Um, Solomon actually caught me on Friday night, one of the men in our church, and said, hey, how's it going with those eggs, pastor? Uh, because I've been pretty awesome, uh, pretty open about how awesome I think these, uh, these are, and uh, this is a tough time of year for me. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not as young as I used to be, and so I don't just have the liberty and the freedom that I once had in my life to just eat what I want when I want. Um, I have to be a little bit mindful of those things because there are some inevitable consequences of uh, this time of year. Anybody want one? I have a whole, you can come, go ahead, come on up here. Munya, will you help me? Because if I keep them, I'll, I'll eat them all. Uh, there may be some people who, yeah, give them away. Yeah. I don't want to take them home. You know, there are, there are things in life that, um, that are just certain immutable laws, right? Um, Man, I love these fluffy eggs. <laughs> I really don't know what it is about them, but you just can't eat one, right? That's why I had to get rid of the box. Anybody besides me? Like, you're like, why am I eating this? And then you just keep it, you eat. And there are certain, um, there's certain immutable laws in life that I wish were not true, but they are true. Like, for instance, if I keep eating these fluffy eggs, I'm gonna get fl fluffy myself. <laughs> That was my wife, by the way, who said, you know, get that old man humor. Oftentimes we're at restaurants and stuff and I'll, I'll tell the waitress, oh, she keeps me on a strict diet. I'm her trophy husband. She doesn't like it. Uh, she doesn't like it very much when I, when I make that joke. I think it's really funny. But if you keep eating fluffy eggs, you're, you're gonna get fluffy, right? It's, a, it's an immutable law. And there are some things that in life, uh, we know they just are. Um, there's, nothing, there's nothing really you can do uh, to change them. If, if you want to change them, you have to change course. And uh, Easter is a time that we recognize, that we celebrate the course of history was changed forever. The course of all of our lives, all of the lives of those who've gone before us and all of the lives of those who come after us was changed forever on Easter, on this holiday that we celebrate, on the events that we commemorate by celebrating this holiday, what Jesus did for us. On Friday night, I read just briefly um, from 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want to read verses 1 through 4 to you. It says this, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, hear this, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. See, Paul was writing to the church at Corinth. We've talked about it many times here at North Place. And in that letter where he was writing to this church that he had once founded, he was correcting many errors and mistakes. He was also correcting false teaching that was happening in the world in his particular part of the world at that time that was threatening the church. And one of the particular brands of false teaching that was happening during this time in history was that there were people who were denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as a result of this denial of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what Paul was simply saying was that if you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you do not believe in Jesus. You may believe in some kind of Jesus, but you don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Paul was saying, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you are not a Christian. You are not a disciple of Jesus. You have believed some form of a false gospel. In 2023, friend, I can tell you there are people all over the world who like the idea of Christianity. They like the idea of a benevolent man named Jesus who lived at some point in history who was really good and who was really kind, but they do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. There are many people around you who wear the label of Christian. They would probably tell you they are Christians, but they do not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And according to scripture, I don't know what you may call them, but I can tell you this, they are not followers of Jesus. They are not disciples. They are not biblical Christians. They have believed some false gospel they have believed some other truth, but they are not believing in the truth of the word of God. You see, the gospel is invariable in its presentation, and it is inevitable in its effectuation. This is what Paul was teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In other words, he says to those who are reading this letter, who are hearing his words, you have to understand that the gospel doesn't vary. It is really clear. Paul said, here's the first gospel that you heard. It's the gospel that he himself teached and, pre and preached. It is the gospel that all of the apostles taught and preached. And it is this, Jesus died for your sins. He died because you and I are lost completely and totally without hope and without a future in our sin. He died and paid the price. We call that atonement. He died and he paid the price for our sin. But he didn't stay in that place of death. He was buried. People attested to the fact that he was buried. It was a public known fact. It was included not only in biblical history, but secular history as well, that Jesus was a man, that he was crucified by Rome, and that he was buried. It is a proven fact. All of these things happened. He died for your sin and mine. He was buried, and then he rose again. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul goes on 
to list the evidence of these things. You may be sitting here today and you may be saying, Randy, all of this really sounds well and good. I was just coming to be encouraged. I was coming to be with people. I'm not so sure that I really believe in the resurrection. Can't I believe in Jesus and not believe in the resurrection? And the answer to the question is no. Not the Jesus of the Bible. You can believe in a made-up Jesus. You can believe in a, a, a human Jesus, but you cannot believe in the Jesus of the Bible and not believe in the resurrection. Paul lists in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 all of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. We can believe in the resurrection of Jesus because it was a fulfillment of prophecy. As you read your Bible, I can tell you that conservatively speaking, there were, and this is a conservative number, conservatively speaking, there were over 300 prophecies that Jesus specifically and legitimately fulfilled in his life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection. History through prophecy spoke of a Messiah named Jesus who would come and Jesus line by line, letter upon letter, fulfilled those prophecies. We can believe in the resurrection because it was foretold and it was fulfilled in Jesus. We can believe in the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus himself spoke of himself. He prophesied of himself. He said, I am going to die and I'm going to be resurrected. John chapter two, verses 19 through 21 says this, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. In other words, Jesus prophesied of himself, I will be killed, I will be buried, but I will rise again. You can believe in the resurrection because it was foretold and it was fulfilled. And you cannot believe in the Jesus of the Bible if you do not believe in the resurrection because he said of himself, I will be killed and I will rise again. So if you believe in Jesus and you don't believe in the resurrection, then you don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Because if you don't believe in the resurrection, then you're calling the Jesus of the Bible a liar. And friend, he cannot be he cannot be a liar and also be holy. He cannot be a liar and also, also be the one in whom we put our trust and our confidence. Along with the Old Testament prophets, he spoke of himself and he said, I will die and I will rise again. And then scripture teaches us and Paul talks about the fact that there were over, there were hundreds and hundreds, over 500 people who saw and verified the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now you may be sitting here today and you may say, well, oh, Randy, that's all well and good. But of course the Bible or your interpretation of the Bible is going to say that Jesus rose from the dead. But listen to me, my skeptical friend. Just, just, just join with me in conversation for just a second. You're so logical and you're so thought out. And I'm not being condescending, I'm being real. You're logical and you're thought out. So let's follow the logic. Let's follow the concept today. Jesus is a thought to be um, religious leader, spiritual leader, zealot, who is leading a revolt against Rome. Why was Jesus 
Why was Jesus falsely accused, nailed to a cross, and executed by the state of Rome? Why was he executed? Well, we know that he was executed because the Jewish religious leaders felt like he was a, follow me, skeptic, please follow me. Let's enter into the argument today. The religious leaders felt like Jesus was a threat to their religious rule. And so as a result, they set up false accusations against him and they had him executed at the hand of Rome because they didn't want their hands to be dirty, but they also needed him out of the way because he was upsetting their religious rule. So that's why the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus murdered. Why did Rome want him murdered? Well, Rome wanted him murdered because as they saw him, what they saw was that he was a threat who was capable of upending their rule on the earth. Remember, Rome was the political rule of the day and what they did not need, what they did not want was some wild Jewish teacher stirring up the people who would lead a revolt against them. Remember, the leader of Rome at that time ultimately did not want to destroy him and didn't want to kill him, but because he had stirred up so much trouble in Jerusalem, ultimately the leader of Rome said, we better have him killed because we don't want him leading a revolt against us. He tried to wash his hands and not have Jesus executed, and you can read it from history, but ultimately the Jewish people that day said, crucify him, crucify him. The leader of Rome said, I don't want to crucify him, but then what did they say? They said, if you don't crucify him, then we're going to appeal to Rome. We're going to appeal to the ultimate authority and tell them that you're allowing a crazy man, that you're allowing someone who's going to lead a revolt to live. So ultimately, Rome made made the choice to execute Jesus because they didn't want a revolt. So follow the logic. Skeptic, please follow the logic with me today. Jesus has been executed. He's been hung on a cross, violent, terrible death. They take his body off of the cross. Ultimately, we know from history that Rome would usually allow those bodies to stay on the cross for days and days and days because they were obsessed with demonstrating their power. Distorted powers often are obsessed with demonstrating their power. Rome was obsessed with it. However, as an exception to the rule and really because the Jewish leaders wanted to cover their shame and a Sabbath was about to happen, a special Sabbath. They said, please take the bodies down. He's clearly dead because they had shoved a spear in his side and the Bible, the Bible states and history states that when they shoved the spear in his side, that blood and water flowed out. Now, what medical science teaches us is when there is a release of blood and water like that, it clearly indicates there had been heart failure. So he was obviously dead. Blood and water flow. They took his body off of the cross because it was clear that he had died. Remember, they broke the legs of the thieves. This is another prophecy fulfilled. None of Jesus' bones were broken as a fulfillment of those over 300 prophecies that we talked about earlier. They would always break their legs to make sure they were dead before they took them off the cross because Rome had to prove its power. But in this case, they did not because it was a fulfillment of prophecy. They stabbed his side, blood and water flew. It was clear he had had heart failure. They took him off the cross. The Bible says that he was placed in the borrowed tomb of a very prominent man. Follow me, I'm a skeptic, just come with me for a minute. His body wasn't buried in some obscure place that no one knew about. It wasn't buried in some place that no one cared about. It was buried in the place of a prominent person. People would have known where it was. 
This was a prominent execution. All of Jerusalem was stirred up. Everybody knew about it. And they took his body to a very public place. And they laid it there in a tomb. A, a, a stone was rolled over and they sealed the tomb. And they placed Roman guards to guard the body. Why would Rome do that? Because the last thing Rome could afford was to make a martyr out of this supposed Messiah. Rome said, let's guard the body so we can prove that he's dead and he stayed dead. We know the story. The story is that he was dead, but he didn't stay dead. Now you may say, well, well again, you're just reading this from scripture. Why? Uh, okay, follow me, follow the logic. If Rome, the greatest power in the world at its time, needed to do everything that it could do to support and keep its own power, why would it allow the body of a supposed Messiah to go missing? It would not. And if that body had gone missing, what would Rome do? Rome would exhaust every bit of its wealth, every bit of its power to find that body. The Bible teaches us that the stone was rolled away, that Jesus was resurrected, and that Rome and the religious leaders accused Jesus' followers of stealing the body. But here's the thing, neither history nor scripture nor those accusers of that day ever found the body of Jesus. Follow me. Follow the logic. Follow your own reason, skeptic. If the resurrection isn't true, why did Rome never find the body? Why did the greatest power on earth at its time, with all of its wealth and all of its resources and all of its, all of its power, why was it never able to find the body? It never found the body because the body doesn't exist because he rose from the dead. Rome would have never allowed the body of Jesus to not be discovered. There would be some indication somewhere in history that the greatest power in the world of its time, arguably one of the greatest powers ever in history with inexhaustible resources would have been able to find the body. Why? Because it would have done everything that it could do to prove that he was dead and he stayed dead. Not only would have Rome done everything that it could do, but also the Jewish leaders that had everything to lose, that had everything to lose if Jesus was resurrected or Jesus' body went missing, they would have done everything they, they, could, they could have done to have also found the body. They would have persecuted, they would have hunted down, they would have done everything they could do to the followers of Jesus. Why? To prove, to prove that he was dead and he stayed dead. And yet there is nowhere in history in which there's clear evidence that they can prove that they ever found the body of Jesus. Both Rome and the religious leaders of the Jewish people People would have done anything to find his body, but they could not find his body because his body doesn't exist because he rose from the dead. So skeptic, I love you. I, I really do. And I'm not being condescending today. I really, this is, this is from the bottom of my heart. I understand your question. I have questions too. I've asked questions my entire life. I believe, I believe asking questions are a good thing. But here's the thing. If you keep asking the same question over and over again because you don't like the answer, it's not, that you, it's not that you still have a question. It's just that you deny the answer. And if you keep denying the resurrection of Jesus because you keep asking the same question that you've already got an answer to, it's not that you're in a place of, well, I can't respond because I'm not getting answers to my question. It's because you don't like the answer to your question. Because here's the deal, friend. The answer to your question calls a claim on your life. 
the answer to the fact that there is insurmountable evidence that Jesus clearly was resurrected from the dead makes a claim on your life and it makes a claim on my life. It made a claim on Rome. It made a claim on the religious leaders of Jesus' day. It made a claim that changes everything. You see, the supposition of the death and the subsequent resurrection of Jesus Christ is the substance on which Christians take their stand. And so when Paul wrote to the church at Corinthians, he wanted to make it very, very clear. We as Christians, this is what we believe. This is what we take our stand on. Not anything else, not on the, on the fact that Jesus was a good man or that Jesus did miracles or we like the idea of Jesus. We take our stand on this reality. We were sinners who were in need of a savior. That savior came and he conquered death hell and the grave and he rose victorious over death hell and the grave and that changes everything forever that's what we believe as christians that's who we are as believers and if we're not that if we don't believe that then we're not christians first corinthians chapter 15 verses 17 through 19 says and if christ has not been raised your faith is futile and you are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Please understand, when Paul writes these words, the church is being persecuted. He himself had been persecuted many times. Many of the disciples have already been executed for their faith. Oh, skeptic, please help, help come, come with me into this conversation a little bit. Remember, remember from historical and biblical accounts, Jesus' closest to followers, his disciples, when he is arrested and he's taken to trial, what does the Bible say? And what does history say about those who were his closest followers, his best friends? The Bible says that they ran and they hid. They denied him. Can you explain to me, skeptic, what would take people who had gone from running and hiding and denying him upon his arrest to becoming so bold that they would literally travel around the known world at their time and they would stand before Rome and religious leaders. What would cause people to go from being cowards? What would cause people from going from a place of running and hiding? People like, like Peter who actually were seeing Jesus be persecuted and arrested. People who loved him, who were his best friends, who would stand there and watch him be falsely accused and curse him because they were so afraid from themselves, what would cause someone like Peter to go from denying the very one that he loved to standing up and ultimately allowing himself to be executed for that one? Nothing would cause that change except for the fact that they knew, that they knew, that they knew that he was the one who came. And the gospel is this, he died for our sins. He went to the grave. He was victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And he rose again. And in his rising again, it changed everything. What changed those disciples from cowards from people who would fear for their own lives was the fact that they themselves had seen with their own eyes that he had power over death, hell, and the grave. They became emboldened because they knew even if you take us to a cross, even if you kill us, even if you persecute us, death has no hold on us. They became bold, they became powerful because they knew he was 
who he said he was. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 teaches us very clearly something. We are not doomed and we are not damned. We are not doomed and we are not damned. On that night when Jesus was betrayed and he was arrested and and those disciples watched as their world began to unravel, they began to believe we're doomed. As he has been taken to the cross, we're gonna be taken to the cross. We're damned forever. We're, well, everything that we hold for is lost. We're not doomed. We're not damned. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 teaches us. That's what the gospel teaches us. Sin does not have a hold on us. Death is not victorious over us. It doesn't matter what they do to this body because this body will pass away. He's gonna give me a new one. They watched as he was beaten. They watched as he was hung on a cross. They watched as the spear was shoved into his side. And they also watched as he came into the room where they were and they say, saw his nail-scarred hands. They saw his side and yet he lived. And in seeing that, they recognize we're not doomed and we're not damned. There's nothing they can do to us. There's nothing they can do to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 27 says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, get, you've got to hear this. It is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Let me say, Pastor Randy, what is that? What does that mean to me? This is what it, it means to you. Those of us who believe the gospel, those of us who believe that Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah, the one who came to pay the price that you and I cannot pay. Because listen, you can never be good enough. You've tried to work hard. You've tried to follow all the rules and you end up breaking them. I've tried to be perfect and what I continually find as I look in the mirror is my imperfection. Hello, can, can we be honest? Life has taught us, life has taught us that we are in need of a savior. And what scripture teaches us is those of us who realize I am in need of a savior and we surrender our lives to this savior and we accept the free gift that he offers to us as a sacrifice for our sin. As we accept the atonement, his willingness to pay the price that I cannot pay. As we believe that he in fact is the son of God and that he is victorious over death, hell, and the grave. What scripture teaches us, what Paul says is that because all things have been subjected under his feet, that when I surrender to him, all of a sudden, those things that have power over me are now subjected under me. My sin that held me captive no longer rules me. My brokenness that once defined me defines me no longer. Death that once was always calling Death that was always drawing. Death that held this power over me that caused me to live with fear and condemnation at all times. Now, death has no power over me because it has been subjected. See, as we place our faith in a risen Savior, we join him in his victory. First, excuse me, Romans chapter 6, verses 10 through 14 says, For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. 
but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin, alive in Christ Jesus. And here's Christian friend, this is what I need you to hear today. Listen to what Paul says. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. This is, this is what Christian friend, this is what you need to hear on Easter Sunday. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Paul says, he's teaching the church, because of what Jesus has done for you, that which once ruled you doesn't rule you any longer. They can't make you obey. It can't make you obey. See, here's the deal, skeptic. You think, you think, oh, we can't prove the resurrection. We absolutely prove the resurrection because Rome never found the body. The religious leaders never found the body. They needed to find the body. They had to find the body. Somewhere in history, you should be able to find irreputable evidence that they found the body. But you can't find that evidence, skeptic. Why? Because they never found the body. They had to find the body because if they didn't find the body, those people who were following Jesus didn't have to obey. They could say, if you don't stop preaching the gospel, we're going to hang you on a cross. And his followers would say, okay. They would say, if you don't stop preaching the gospel, we're going to persecute you. We're going to starve you to death. And his followers would say, okay, take my body from me. He's going to give me another one. Because he has already shown me he can do that. You may hate Christianity and you may hate Christians, but there's no way you can read history. I don't care what lens you read it through. There's no way you can be honest about history and deny the fact that what happened on that hill all those years ago transformed a people into the most dangerous and disruptive group of people that history has ever known. You may hate Christians, you may hate Christianity. Listen, the church may have hurt you and I know for a fact there's a lot of people who in the name of Jesus and in the name of the church have done a lot of harm but there's no honestly intellectual lens through which you can read history and deny the fact that something happened all those years ago that brought a transformation that has transcended time and space and culture and people and wars and famine that created a movement to this day which has not stopped. Amen. And that event is the resurrection. It created a people who said, you know what? Sin no longer has hold on me. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. But what does that mean to me as a believer? It means this, do not present your members, the parts of my body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. So in other words, see, Christian, before Christ, you, you had the ability to say, oh, I, did it. I, did, I couldn't do anything about it because I was a slave to sin. 
but Paul is calling you into a place of maturity. See, some of us have been Christians since childhood, but we still wanna live with this plausible deniability. Christian friend, I love you, I respect you, I care about you, but you have no plausible deniability. You have no plausible deniability for your pornography addiction, sir. You have no plausible deniability for your lying mouth, ma'am. You lied before you found Jesus and you're still a liar. And according to scripture, you have no plausible deniability for your lying tongue. I have no plausible deniability for the sin that continues to rule in my life. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, what the Bible says is that he broke the legal hold that sin has on me and now, get this, now when I sin, I'm a willful participant. Y'all were liking it when I was talking to the skeptics, but. <laughs> Paul says, now, sir, you're, you're a willful participant in your alcoholism. You're, you're, you're a willful participant in that addiction. Because sin no longer has the ability to make a claim on you that you can't get out from under. That chain has been broken. So when you go back to it, you're willfully entering into it. You're picking up the handcuffs and putting them back on. Imagine that. Imagine you were in prison today. And they came in and they took the handcuffs off and they opened the jail cell and they said, you're free to go. And you walk out and you look around and... Say, ah, I think it was better back in there. And you go back in and you slam the door shut and you put the cuffs back on. And yet, that's how many of us live. That's how many of us approach this Easter season. We come into church, the doors are wide open, the gates are wide open, the cuffs are free, and yet we come in carrying them. We come in carrying them thinking that we're a slave. We're no longer slaves, but we are free. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. You see, the victory of the cross releases the inescapable hold of sin. That's what the cross provides for us. That's what Easter is all about. It's all about the fact that I am no longer held captive. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 through 57 says this, when the perishable puts on the imperishable the mort- and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And then Paul explains it. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, the condemnation that comes through that understanding of right and wrong that exists in all of us, skeptic that even exists in you. You have boundaries. You have a morality. There is something inside of you that causes you to choose right or wrong. And whether you like to know it or not or admit it or not, that exists inside of you because you were created in the image of the Imago Dei. You are the Imago Dei. You were created in the image of God. You were created to love boundaries. You were created for boundaries. And even if you are an atheist and you hate the church and you hate Christianity, you cannot deny that there is a morality, there are boundaries that exist inside of you and you did not create them for yourself as much as you'd like to tell yourself. Because outside of yourself, those things are still true because you would would say that they are true for others. 
Law has always been written on our hearts. Boundaries have always been written upon us. But here's the problem. Those boundaries prove to us that we are not holy, that we are not good, that we cannot reach the standard ourselves. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, that conscience. And of course, we know that he's talking about the law of Moses to those who were who were of the law of Moses, but he was talking to a cross-cultural crowd who didn't know the law of Moses, and yet inside of them was still this sense of right and wrong. Within all humanity, within all humanity, there is that thing that we call a conscience, and that thing that we call a conscience reveals to all of us that we are in need of a Savior. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. For those of us who are believers today, that victory means that I have power over sin. I have power over sin. I don't have to stay in this place. This sin does not define me. The victory of Christ also means for those of us who are believers, I have power over these things that would cause me to feel powerless. Paul said it earlier in the chapter, we have hope. I don't have to feel hopeless because I'm a believer, because I have won victory in Christ. Nothing rules me, not even this life. For those of us who are not believers this morning, Paul is saying to you is regardless of your skepticism, regardless of your ability to reason or not reason, all of these things. Paul says, you yourself in your heart, you know, you know that there is right, you know that there is wrong, and that knowing of right and wrong reveals the very fact that we are all wrong. And in our wrongness, we are in need of one who would make us right. Paul says the evidence is clear because he said, I with my own eyes have seen him. Dozens of others called the apostles have seen him and fi over 500 others have seen him. The Romans couldn't find his body. The Jewish leaders couldn't find his body. History does not reveal that his body was ever found. Why was his body never found? It was never found because he was resurrected. And his resurrection writes a claim on your life. And this is the claim that it writes. You know you're in need of a savior and one has come. And you choose, you choose whether or not you will embrace this gift that has been offered to you. You choose whether or not you will allow one to come and do for you what you cannot do for yourself. What you cannot do for yourself is to ever satisfy that conscience. It always eats at you. You know it's true. Your pride, your arrogance, it may try to convince you otherwise, but you have to sleep with yourself at night. You know those moments of doubt. You know those questions that can never be answered. And Paul said, here's the one. Here's the one who answers the unanswerable questions. Here's the one, Christian friend, who steps into the places of your insecurity and fear where you feel powerless and you feel like Rome is gonna overwhelm you or you feel like the religious rule is gonna devastate you. Jesus steps into those places and he takes power over all of those things and he empowers you. He empowers you 
to walk in the dignity of your identity as a child of God and to not allow your dignity to be taken from you over and over and over again through the perpetuation of sin in your life. Some of us this morning, we celebrate Easter, but we need to embrace our dignity as children of God. We need to walk in and live in our freedom and not allow sin to any longer rule in our mortal bodies. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to change us and to transform us into the image of this Christ who came and did for us what we could never do for ourselves and did for us what every power on this earth tried to keep him from doing, and that is win the victory.